You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, that was good, huh? Hey, yeah, you can give the Lord a clap. He's hanging out with us this morning. It's so good. Bye. I love you. If you have little guys, the pre-K to first is Miss Susanna, and you can send your little guys or gals. We seem to coordinate. We've got all boys in the little one. And then Miss Perla has grades second to fifth. If you have a child in second to fifth grade, they can meet Miss Perla right here in the hobby. Please make sure that you sign your kiddos in with tags and all that good stuff so that if they need you during the service, they can reach you. So I'll let that transition begin. As you were coming in, Marcos and Jim and Joe and all sorts of folks were meeting you, and they gave you a bulletin. If you want to pull that out, in there is Ezekiel's coloring sheet. Oh, thank you. Um, We are going to be jumping into the book of Ezekiel today, and I find those to be really helpful if you're a visual person. If you're not a visual learner, then it may not matter to you, but if you are, please feel free to grab that because it's fun. I'm just going to switch my mic real quick. If you are a guest with us this morning, we're so glad you're here today. If you're online, we love having you join us. We know a lot of our family is homesick, so thank you for staying home. We like to share a lot of things. We do not like to share germs. So as we go into cold and flu season, if you have germs, you can keep them home. You can always tune in online, Facebook, YouTube, catch it later on a podcast. All those things are great. We are working our way through the entire book of the Bible. It's a really big book. It was written a really long time ago to people who spoke a very different language, lived in a different culture, had a different worldview. And so it's a really hard book for us to just like pick up and read, honestly. You can can do that, and I'm not encouraging you to not pick it up and read it. Um, But the reality is sometimes we get to different sections and we're like, what does this mean? It's weird. It's confusing. It seems really contradictory at times. Um, Or the the ages and the dates and all that, like how does it mash up? And that happens a lot, especially when we hit the prophets. Um, Because they're writing a lot of the times in poetry. They have really strange visions that are absolutely wild and radical. And you're like, I don't know if they were um, seeing the Lord or if there was something else going on here. And so what we're doing on Sunday mornings as we go book by book is providing you with historical, literary, and theological context so that when you go to read it, it makes sense. It's not just something that you can understand, but you can make it modern relevance for you. You can actually say, oh, like this is the point that I can draw out of that. And most of all, most importantly, by us giving you a foundation is to help you discover that the true heart of God throughout the entire book is for you. That he's in this wild pursuit of you that he's never going to stop. He's never going to give up. He's never going to be like, well, I've done enough. That's not God's heart as we read from cover to cover. And so being able to understand that, see it, and begin to engage with him in a way that's intimate and not just kind of like reading a textbook. So that's what we're doing If you miss any of our messages, you can go back and find them on any of those spots that I just highlighted a couple seconds ago. Um, And I would encourage you to do that because we're building as we go book by book. But today we are going to wrap up the major prophets. So that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The only reason 
They're called major is because of how long their books are. They are, if Johanna was giving them a prayer ranking, these guys prayed at a 10, not a 2, for length, not necessarily because what they were saying was any more important than the minor prophets that we'll get to after Christmas. And Ezekiel um, and all of these major prophets all wrote during the twofold exile of Judah. So just to provide some historical background so that as we're talking, we're not just sort of out in left field talking about imaginary land. Um, Judah basically exists in the ancient Near East. So you have a lot of major powers, but the primary ones at the time were Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And we're in that like fertile crescent area. That's where all of this drama is unfolding. And so in 605 BC, Judah becomes basically under taxation of Babylon. Babylon rises as the primary power, though there's still a significant amount of conflict with Egypt. And they are going throughout the land and basically saying, you can still be Judah, but you have to pay our taxes and live by our laws. It'd be kind of like if Canada invaded, which just makes everybody chuckle because they're like, Canada wouldn't do that. But if Canada did invade America and they said, you can still be America, but all your taxes, you have to pay not just what you pay to the um, IRS, but you also have to pay us a tribute. That would be like a modern day scenario of what's happening. And so, of course, nobody likes to be taxed, especially without representation. Dan's not here for my joke, but if he looks back later. Um, and so, just like the colonists, the ungrateful colonists, in 598 BC, King Jehoiakim rebels against King Nebuchadnezzar. So Judah's king rebels against Babylon's king, and they're like, we don't want to do this anymore. And we have to remember that Nebuchadnezzar, unlike Canada, is very strong. They have a huge military power. And so they swoop in, and he immediately comes. He pillages the palace, takes a bunch of gold, pillages the temple, and he takes 10,000 of Judah's most prominent leaders into exile in Babylon. And that means they go to Babylon and establish a refugee camp, basically, in the land. So they're all, all of these 10,000 leaders, political, religious, etc., have now left the building. And so what happens is in that first wave of exile is this guy named Ezekiel. He's about 25 years old. He's a young guy. He's well-educated. He's intelligent. He is on track to become a priest, something that should have happened on his 30th birthday. And all of that is swept away when he gets forced into another land. He's, he's robbed of his homeland and everything he's anticipating. And so that means that Ezekiel, as he's writing, he's a contemporary of Jeremiah. Two dudes are writing at the same exact time. And Jeremiah is back home in Judah writing to the folks there. And Ezekiel finds himself in Babylon writing to the folks there. So if you're thinking about there, you're going to look at I can see it already. She's looking at me. Oh, well, whatever. So anyway, as the two of them are just waiting, um, as the two of them are writing, all of what they're writing about, you can read in Second Kings chapters 22 to 25. So as you're paralleling, these things are all happening, even though the parts of the Bible are broken up, they're going on concurrently, which is just good for us to know as we're reading, because sometimes we get lost. It's like you don't have a roadmap, so like, when is this happening? I don't know, I'm just reading it to read it, so... Um, so anyway, the primary literary style, and then we'll jump into the text itself as we're going. Ezekiel is actually the one prophet that I think is, he's not the easiest to understand because his visions are wild, but he writes in prose, which is like common language. 
I always laugh. He's like the message translation out of the rest of the Bible. So as you're reading him, he's a lot more like having a conversation with as opposed to the purely poetic prophets who you're like, what does that mean? Um, so I think it's just a little bit easier for us to read in one sense. In the other sense, he has really strange visions and does really weird performance art, which makes him like just a fun, fun little book to hang out in. See, John is priming you for some of the things that he sees. So within all of that and all the things that are going on, we could, we could take apart all of Ezekiel in a really literary way, in a really historical way. But I think the most beautiful thing about chapters 1 to 11, which is what we'll do today, is this really unique part of God's heart that we so often misunderstand and overlook. So I'm excited to dig into it. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into chapter 1. But Jesus, we invite you to come and be, um, just to be, be among us. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word and help us to catch God's heart more than anything to understand at the core, why was Ezekiel writing and how does it matter for us today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you tune in to Ezekiel's saga. You open up the book, chapter one, and it's a big day for Ezekiel. It's his 30th birthday. And he has been in exile for five years, and he's not having a party. There are no balloons. There's no cake. I don't even know what they did for birthdays back then. Instead, he's along an irrigation ditch right outside of his refugee camp. And he's probably sitting there because he's kind of bummed. He's like, I was supposed to be installed as a priest today, and I'm in exile, and it just doesn't look like life's panning out exactly the way that I planned it. And that's no one's story here, right? You don't live in an irrigation, or next to an irrigation ditch, perhaps, but most of us have moments where we're like, didn't plan life to look quite like this. So anyway, as he's doing that, he has this wild vision. And what a vision is, it's basically like having a dream, but you're awake, and you're seeing it all play out in front of you. It's like watching a movie, but there's no screen. It's just playing out in the space in front of your eyes. And I'm going to read through a bit of it, and then you have this beautiful picture behind me because... I tried to find the best representation of what I could for what this would have looked like. He sees this dust storm coming up out of the north and an immense cloud with lightning flashing from it and a huge ball of fire glowing like bronze. And within that fire are four creatures vibrant with life that all looked like human beings in form, but they had hooved feet like cows um, and they sparkled from the fire like they were made out of bronze. On four sides, they had wings, so they had four wings, and under those wings were hands, and I don't know, imagine what you will for that. I'm like, wings, hands, are there arms, are they just little hands like T-Rex? I don't know. They had four faces. They had a human face, they had the face of an ox, they had the face of an uh, eagle, and they had the face of a lion, and they had the wings were so big that they touched, so they basically made like a square, and the wings of each were touching. And going in between them were bolts of lightning and fire. And as he's watching the four creatures, he sees what look like gyroscopes or wheels on either side of them. And they are sparkling like diamonds in the sun and they're shimmering. And over them is this like, they're like the foundation. These four creatures, these four wheels are the foundation. And over them is this plane of glass and it's like a dome. And within the dome um, is another set of wings that extended to each other. And it's just, I can't explain it any better than Ezekiel does. It's his vision, and it's really weird to me, honestly. And if it's not weird to you, then you have a very interesting mind. 
But what he sees, all of it, he sums it up for us, thankfully, in verse 28. We're like, I don't know what you're looking at. He says, it turned out to be the glory of the Lord. So he's seeing God. (laughs) You're like, what is going on? And this foundation of what God looks like is is wild, um, the things that's carrying his throne into it. But God's physical presence is there, and it's in Babylon next to this irrigation ditch. And Ezekiel, in his moment, like, oh my goodness, because I think if any of us saw that, we'd, I would have run out of the room. Yeah. I would have been like, I don't know what that is. That's grotesque. I'm gone. And so he does. He immediately goes to the ground in worship because he realizes it's God and he's so in awe. But from that moment, there's also a place of, there's awe and then there's really deep concern. Because one of the things we have to remember is that Israel is a people defined by two very specific things. The first is their place. God said, you're my chosen people, and the way you'll know that is because I'm going to give you the promised land. So the place, the physical area where they lived wasn't just a house or a home or a land. This was God saying, this is yours. I'm giving it to you. And the second thing that he gave them was his presence. So what we find early on in um, when, they're, when he's putting them out of Egypt, when they're going to Mount Sinai, when they get to the promised land, is that God's physical presence shows up among them. And it looks like a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. It, it often has like this cloudy, foggy, smoky effect. And we read in 1 Kings 8, when the temple is actually dedicated to God, um, that he says, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord so filled the house of the Lord. Like it's a thickness. His presence isn't just haze. It's so heavy. It's so tangible. It's so palpable. And that was a distinct feature in who they are. And so for Ezekiel to see God's presence in Babylon, oh, it's windy out today. Look at the distractions. It's fine. We're going to keep, keep going. Um, so for God to see, or for Ezekiel to see God's presence in Babylon meant something was very, very wrong because he wasn't in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the temple where he was supposed to be based on who Israel was. This is a huge problem that most of us, because we're not Jewish, wouldn't even realize. We're like, oh, cool. He sees God's presence. It's like, Oh, no, no, no. If he's seeing God's presence, everything that Israel knows and understands about themselves is coming undone. And chapters 2 to 11 explain why. So in 2 to 3, we see Ezekiel being commissioned as a prophet. I think that's like a really sweet gift. I think if you have a, a situation in life where you feel like you had things very clearly planned, even promises from God where you're like, I'm gonna go do this and this and this and this, and the timeline gets off for the, the actual coming to fruition doesn't quite seem to fit, God still honors the things he says over you. It just may not look the way you think it's going to look. And that's exactly what happens for Ezekiel. So he becomes, he's commissioned as a prophet, and he's, I think, I don't have any foundation for this beyond my own thoughts, so just take it and get rid of it if you don't like it. Um, but I think he was chosen for the role specifically because of his unique theology. So Ezekiel doesn't think the way that the rest of Israel thinks. He actually thinks very differently. Israel believed that because of their special relationship with God, 
you know, we've got the temple, we've got the law, we've got his presence, we've got the land, that they were actually invincible to any form of permanent destruction or judgment or bad things happening in their lives. They're like, we can basically do whatever we want because God said so. He said, we're special, we're his chosen people, so we don't have to worry about anything else. And the issue with that was that when, when the 10 tribes are taken into Assyria uh, 125 years, give or take, prior, they don't conquer Jerusalem. And so that kind of solidified this bad theology that Israel's carrying. And then you have this second exile where that first group of people gets taken out into Babylon. And they're like, it's not a big deal. It's going to be short-lived. It's just a few of us. It's only 10,000. We're so much bigger than that. And so every time that God was trying to speak, they were ignoring it because they're like, we're invincible. It doesn't matter. Any of this bad stuff that happens, like we're good with God because we're his people, which is really interesting because we still can do that. We can still pretend like I'm God. I go to church on Sunday. I do what I'm supposed to do most of the time. Like God's going to protect me. And it's not that God doesn't love you. But there's a dynamic there of kind of abusing a relationship for what you can get out of it without really putting anything into it. And Ezekiel, on the other hand, aside from the majority of Israel, says that's not how a relationship works. He understood that when Israel consented, which is an important word, Israel consented to be in a relationship with God. And we read about it in Deuteronomy and when they consented to that, it was a lot like a marriage relationship where they both agreed to do certain things. And they were both responsible to honor their part in the relationship, which meant if they didn't do certain things, there were going to be consequences. And they were specifically told in Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68, you will forfeit your your uh, place and God's presence if you don't honor the relationship that I've called you into. And so God says to Ezekiel, go and tell the people this. They need to remember that this isn't a free ride, that there is still obligations or expectations of fidelity. That's what God was looking for was fidelity. I think any of us, if we're in a relationship with someone, whether it's a spouse or it's a, a friendship, like you want a level of fidelity and loyalty there. You don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's going to stab your back and betray you. And God is the same, right? His, his heart is the same. But as he commissions Ezekiel to go with this big heavy word, he's like, but by the way, they're not going to listen to you because they haven't listened to me, and they haven't listened to anybody that I've sent to them. So Ezekiel 3.7 basically says, they have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart, and you're doomed to fail, Ezekiel, because there's not going to be a change the way that you would hope from a prophet. And it's interesting, because you would think, okay, God, A, you just set him up to fail. Like That's not fun. But I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective. Why does God continue to try and pursue his people even when they have rejected him so soundly? He loves them. Yeah. It's like doesn't matter how far they go. He refuses to give up on them. And we have to pause in that moment and say, okay, have there been times in my life where I have felt like God has given up on me? Are there moments where we felt unsure of his love because maybe we've done something we know he doesn't like? 
The reality of shame and how often it intersects with faith is tremendous. But it's not from God. Shame and guilt and this type of manipulative relationship is not the way that God works. And what we find, this is a first reminder, this, these first three verse, or chapters of Ezekiel where you might get lost in the weird vision or the doomed prophetic commissioning that's about to happen. But here what I see is a tenacity in God's love for humanity. It's a, it's a dogged persistence to say, even when you are not interested in me, I do not turn my back on you. I do not give up on you. And that may be somebody's story this morning. You're not sure if God actually is still invested in your life. And he is. He is. And the rest of the next set of chapters, I think, just further affirms it. Um, because God, yeah, he is just so passionately in pursuit of his people. And we are his people. All of humanity, every person that he has created, he says, I, I made you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. You come fully alive in me. And so he, he commissions Ezekiel. He says, go share this word. But instead of just going out and like yelling it from the corner, which we sometimes run into people that do that, uh, he says, he gives, he gives Ezekiel a very artistic commissioning, which if you are in the arts, the theater, music, I think you'll appreciate this perhaps more than most. But what is the most powerful movie or stage production you've ever experienced? Just think about it for 30 seconds and then I'll get a, a volunteer or two. Powerful movie, stage production, could be a song, some like musical thing that really just whew, impacted you. All right, Dak, yeah. Dang. Yeah. Thank you. For, yeah, that would be. So if you were online, uh, Dak said he watched the Pearl Harbor movie on the deck of an aircraft carrier at night. If you don't know Dak and Aaron, they're from Hawaii, so like all of the things, proximity makes that feel really, really strongly. One other person that, what's something that really, Hamilton, why? What about it impacted you so deeply? Hamilton, I need the why, I need the, what? The vision. Mm. Yeah. So Imani said the, it's not a movie, it's a stage production. Yeah, I, you can tell I still haven't seen it yet. Um, Hamilton, all of the way that the, the way it's put together makes it really powerful. There's a lot of things. Some of them can impact you in a really beautiful way. Some can leave you weeping. You know, the reality is the arts communicate deep truths to us in really unique ways. Like you will remember songs that we sing on Sunday morning a lot faster than you'll remember anything I ever say. Because we, we have a visceral reaction to music. Yeah. And so basically, Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, go stand out in front of your house, and you're going to basically live in silence for approximately a year and a half while you do these four intense pieces of performance art. So if you don't think that the Lord doesn't love art, he does. And a year and a half of silence. And so he has this really profound trance next to a ditch. Then he starts doing weird stuff. People are paying attention. 
They live in a small refugee camp. 10,000 people, you think, that's huge. That's the size of Cohoes. If somebody starts going out in front of their house and doing what I'm about to describe, word's going to get out really quick that this is happening. So people know what's going on. In Act, or act 1, he creates a large-scale model of Jerusalem on a brick. He basically builds, I don't want to say a dollhouse, but he like carves it out on a brick. And then he builds siege work around it to represent that the first exile and that first issue that happened isn't really going to be the end. There's a more cata catastrophic destruction coming against Jerusalem. So he kind of like leaves that. He sets it all up. He makes a mini model. Like if you like trains and stuff, it's there. And he leaves it set up as a backdrop for Act 2. And God, be, Act 2 and Act 3 and Act 4 kind of actually happen simultaneously. They're not one at a time. So Act 2 is to lay on his left side in a specific direction for 390 days. And before you say, Brittany, that's not humanly possible, Ezekiel didn't live on his side. He laid there probably for a duration of time every day, like 9 to 12, um, for 390 days. And every single day was to reflect a year that Israel would be in exile. And, then, and they'd already been taken, right? 125 years had already passed since Assyria had started that. And then after he lays on that side, he has to roll over and lay on the other side for 40 more days to represent the length of time that Judah would be in exile. And there's debate over the amount of all of that, and I can, we can chat about how it actually comes to fruition historically, but we're not going to do that right now. So he does that, and while he's laying silently, God also says, your diet's also going to be this funky form of bread um, that you're going to cook over human poop. And Ezekiel's like, whoa. <laughs> I'll do a lot of things for you. I'll do a lot for you, God. But that I've never eaten anything unclean, and that sounds foul. And so God's like, all right, you can use cow poop instead. So he eats basically bread and water for this duration of time, and he has it very specifically rationed. And it's to show the people that when we go into this next exile, we're going to be besieged for so long that food's going to be rationed in Jerusalem, and then we're going to be pulled from our homeland. And the conditions that we're in are not going to allow us to have like ceremonial cleanliness the way that we were used to having when we lived at home. And then the last bit, Act 4 in Chapter 5, he has to cut his hair. And you're like, what? And again, remember that there are elements of holiness to not cutting your hair. Think if you know of any Orthodox Jews. And God says, cut your hair, Ezekiel, and you're going to divide it three ways to show that a third of the people are going to be killed in Jerusalem, a third of them are going to be killed while they're fighting in Judah, the land, and then a third of them, those that are left, are going to be brought into exile by Babylon. So some really intense performance art, and I love this because God is like, some of you aren't going to get the arts, and that's okay. I'm a very creative God who loves to create, but he follows up these four acts with two very literal oracles that are like, in case you missed it, if the memo wasn't read, Jerusalem's about to be destroyed, and I mean like big time. Um, and, and so I just am thankful that God's like, well, you know, not everybody's visual, so we'll do some more. But if you love the arts, so does the Lord. And he says, all of this is going to happen, and this is where we'll land the plane today. He says, Israel, all of this is going to happen because of that fidelity issue. Because your heart doesn't really belong to me, and you covenanted, you agreed, you said, let's be in a relationship together, and then you've done everything opposite that. You've made, you've gotten in bed with other gods, quite literally, 
You've been making political allies that I've told you not to make. Your society is disgustingly unjust towards people. And God's like, all of these things break my heart. They were explicitly put in our agreement that you would be in relationship with me. You guys can back the slide up for one minute. You're going to steal my thunder. Um, <laughs> um, and you've, you've chosen not to do that. And so the last part, chapter 6 to 11, is basically all this performance art has happened. And then Ezekiel gets another really profound vision where he's sitting there and God says, I want you to see how bad things have gotten back at home. And so in 592, God shows Ezekiel an image of the temple. And I want you to think of it this way. If God and Israel are like a couple, which might be a weird dynamic, but just for the sake of the analogy, God's the husband and Israel's the wife. They've consented to a fidelity. They've said, we're going to be loyal and faithful and no one else is going to be in this relationship. It's just us. And what happens is Israel actually sets up other idols inside and outside of the temple. And that is effectively like not just cheating on your spouse, but bringing your lover home and doing it in front of them with them being fully aware. That is what's happening in Israel. And God's like, I don't know what to do anymore. We have tried for centuries to tell you to come back to fidelity with me, to come back to a good, healthy relationship with me, because what you're doing, you're whoring yourself out, and it's not going well. You're bringing home a lot of STDs. They maybe don't look like that physically, but the way your society is shaped now is exactly the consequences of what you're doing. And I don't want you to do that because you're just hurting you but you're also hurting me. And it gets to the point where God says, you know what? I can't win you back. And so he leaves Israel. We're told in Ezekiel 10, 18, what God see, or what Ezekiel sees is the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. And he's like, I, you don't want me anymore. You have shown me repeatedly that you don't want me anymore. And we have to remember, if we think back to our message a few weeks ago, that God leaving, that it's the phrase that Moses created, he hides his face from Israel. It's the removal of his presence because God doesn't act out of anger. As we read about the destruction of Jerusalem, it's easy to be like, well, God just had, he just pummeled them because he was so mad. He didn't do that. Zedekiah broke his treaty with Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah made bad political decisions that caused the destruction of Jerusalem. Not God. God said, my choice is to no longer protect you from your stupidity because you don't want my protection, so I am leaving. But we need to catch this because this, if we live with this dynamic and we don't look at the whole of what Ezekiel is seeing, then you will leave with a theology that says, when I disappoint God, he walks away from me. And that's not what happens here. We have to catch the reality that when God leaves the temple in Judah, where does he go? To Babylon. God leaves. He says, I, you don't want me anymore. But he doesn't actually leave that relationship. He physically leaves the temple and he goes to the place where his people are going to be 
in a few more years. He doesn't run away from them. He runs ahead of them. He doesn't say, you have so disappointed me. I don't want you anymore. He says, you don't want me. I'm still going to be around. I'm just going to go ahead to where your bad decisions are going to bring you. You're going to get, you're going to go get high. I'm going to be there while you're going through all of that dynamic. You're going to go drive your car drunk and get a DWI. I'm going to meet you in jail. You're going to go cheat on your spouse. I'm going to meet you in the train wreck of your relationship after. You're going to go commit fraud. I'm going to meet you in your bankruptcy. God does not leave us when we make bad decisions. If that's our theology, it's not a good theology because it takes apart what really happens in Ezekiel. God says, my people have abandoned me. I will not abandon them. I am going to go ahead because they're on a crash course for bad stuff. And I I have to honor the fact that I am just. So I'm not going to let injustice persist. But I will meet them where they're headed. I am going to be prepared for them in that place. Which means if we have messed up and we all have. God did not turn his back on us and say, I don't love you anymore. He said, guess where I am? I'm in rehab. I'm in jail. I'm in your train wreck, ready to pick you up and make beauty out of it. Because this is where it connects back to what Jeremiah caught. Jeremiah says to the the exiles, he's like, so by the way, when you get into exile, don't go and be sad and like, don't don't go and decrease. He says, go and flourish in exile, which is a weird word for a people who've just been stripped of their homeland, who've gone through war and chaos and are living in refugee camps. He says, when you get there, get married, build buildings, have businesses, marry people, have babies. He says, keep living. And the reason for that is because God is there. God is in the exile with them. And he says, if I am with you, I bring life. I am life. I am life itself. And so I don't want you to, in your consequences, continue to punish yourself. I don't want you to keep flogging your back. I don't want you to live under guilt and shame and judgment of yourself. Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, there's consequences to that. But guess what? I still love you and I want to rebuild with you. And that's what I'm promising to do. And that's what we see in Ezekiel 1 to 11. Ezekiel's like, God left the temple because he came here. He knew what was going to go down. And so he doesn't abandon his people. He prepares for his people. And that is something we can go to the bank on ourselves. Where if we have things that we are determined that God cannot touch in our lives because we've messed it up so royally, that's not true. There is hope, there is freedom, there is peace, and there is restoration. There is beauty from pain and chaos. Because when God is present, everything is possible. And he can put things back together. At your most painful moments, God is present because he is doggedly in pursuit of you. Doggedly. You are so loved this morning, whether you receive that or not. But my heart would be that you would be willing to say, okay, God, maybe you do love me more than I think you do. Maybe you are with me, even though it doesn't feel like it. My life is falling apart, but but maybe if I turn around, I will actually see you in the midst of it. 
because that's exactly what he wants. And here, here's the beautiful segue to Advent and where we'll move into ministry time. If you are struggling to believe this, you are in, I don't say cahoots, that's not the right word. You're in the same place as most of Israel who, is, who, who goes through this dynamic and yet they have such a hard time believing that God is still for them. And then you hit Matthew in the first, the first book of the New Testament. And we read in Matthew 1.23, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son named Jesus. That's who it'll be. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. His name alone is a sign that God does not hum hate humanity and has not given up on us. He's not running away from us because we're too much of a problem child. He's like, you don't receive me, so here I am showing up on your doorstep so that you will know how much I love you. And then Jesus' message, his name alone is power, but then his message is the kingdom of God is at hand. God hasn't abandoned humanity. He is in passionate pursuit of you. He has come near, guys. He's not far away, disappointed and angry. He is right here looking you in the face. I am a picture of that as you're looking in the eyes of Jesus. And then his life is a powerful demonstration of that. Jesus frequently speaks to the people who are overlooked, forgotten, and abandoned by society to say, I see you and I am with you because I love you. I can't wait to get into Advent in a couple weeks because we're going to practice experiencing him and what it means for God to be with us, no matter if we feel worthy, no matter if we believe in him, no matter if this is all something that we're just kind of figuring out, God is with us. And he loves us so much. So we're going to move into ministry time and hang out with him for a little bit longer before we go about our Sunday. So if you would stand up with me, we'll just move our legs, get them all. I can do it. I can be... Jen, like I can move my body too. <laughs> Night at the Roxbury. Um, yeah. <laughs> can you even see that? Oh yeah, you guys have the screen. So, um, I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. I think there's a few things that His Spirit just wants to connect with us. I know some of you are being impacted by the reality of the message, and I just want you to have the time to respond to Him. So, Holy Spirit, we invite Your presence to come both here and online with our folks at home. Yeah. Yeah. If shame, if you are ashamed of yourself or you feel guilt before God, those are not things that are from him. And in fact, they're clouds from the enemy to block you from recognizing and living in the fullness of God's love for you. And if that's where you are this morning, the Holy Spirit wants to minister to that by beginning to just speak the truth of the fullness of his love for you. So Spirit, would you come 
and actually blow away those clouds of guilt and shame right now.